my dad's just singing along, just one hand on the wheel. And I'm like, Dad, Bob Dylan just said, son of a bitch. And I and he, my dad is just like, you know, sitting back, smiling and singing the lyrics. I just felt like my dad was just so cool. And I thought that was, I, I just was so lucky. This is Caregiver Storyteller, produced by Caring Kind, the heart of Alzheimer's caregiving. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Caregiver Storyteller, a storytelling podcast about Alzheimer's and dementia caregiving. I'm Chris Doucette, and I'll be interviewing caregivers to get their stories about Alzheimer's and dementia caregiving. Occasionally, I'll also interview the authors, advocates, researchers, healthcare professionals, and people with Alzheimer's and dementia to hear their stories, too. So, are you ready? Here we go. My name is Daniel Kenner. I was born in Providence, Rhode Island. I've lived in New York for eight years now. And my dad was officially diagnosed with FTD, frontal temporal lobe dementia, on Valentine's Day 2013. And then, unfortunately, four months later, my mom was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. It was a lot. Yeah, it was a lot. It was a long, loving four years, for sure. Um, My dad ended up passing away last February the 20th, and then four weeks later, my mom passed away on March 16th, or a week after her 60th birthday. My dad had about a year of kind of erratic behavior between the late 2011 and then officially diagnosed 2013. Uh, And then he ended up passing February of 2018. So ended up having FTD for five years. And my mom, June of 2013, went to donate blood and she was uh, turned away and they thought she had anemia. So she went and saw specialists, and then it, she found out she had colon cancer. And by the time she went in for surgery in July, it had metastasized to her colon and from her colon to her umbilicus. So she had cancer from 2013 till March 2018, uh, and she ended up going on hospice actually on my 30th birthday. Um, and it was one of those things where we're literally walking up the stairs, and I think my mom kind of had that gut feeling of knowing what's about to happen you know that sunken feeling when the doctors kind of just parade in the room and it's kind of heads down shoulders a little slumped and then everyone kind of inches their chairs towards you a little bit and you know halfway through you realize that you're having the talk so she was the primary caregiver for my dad um, who had ftd and and then in a week after Father's Day in 2016, they were kind of binge watching uh, a season of Suits, and my dad went downstairs to get the laundry and ended up falling about seven stairs down in, in our basement. So ended up spending I guess the last you know eight months practically paralyzed. So it was uh, a lot. Of, a lot was coming together with these kind of two forces but for some reason their spirits were always kind of intertwined just one diagnosis after another and then kind of passing away one after the other I and I think that my mom was kind of waiting for to make sure that my dad would be okay and pass for kind of the four years I always thought that my mom would go first just because her cancer was so aggressive she ended up doing 63 chemotherapy treatments um and so I kind of always thought that my mom would go first and that, and that kind of hung over, how am I going to do the job that my mom is doing for my dad? 
and then he ended up passing away uh, actually four weeks after I gave my mom the first draft of Room for Grace. And then four weeks later, uh, mom was gone as well. So for my mom and dad's 30th wedding anniversary, I was really looking for a project to kind of keep me close. Up until that point, I was coming home every few weeks, and my dad's dementia was really kind of erasing his personality. And my dad, I like to joke, was always my favorite parent. And all those stories and the energy and the charisma and the mischievousness of my dad was just disappearing from the disease. And I was really getting afraid about losing all of his stories. And and because mom was getting more sick, I realized that I needed to take on a project to kind of capture some of this legacy and some of these stories. For their So for their 30th wedding anniversary, we went to Bar Harbor, Maine for a week, and we rented just a, a hotel room. And I prepared 30 hours of interview questions for an oral history with my mom. My mom was a special education teacher for 35 years in Providence, and my dad was a middle school theater teacher for 14 in Providence after owning a restaurant and after starting the theater program at uh, Rhode Island School of Design. And so we kind of just hunkered down for a week, and we kind of got these stories out. I guess what I found out was that these stories kept me coming home, and having a project was really vital for me not to shy away. And so the project, I get to keep hearing their voices by writing and stylizing and editing it. But at the same time, I was so afraid every time I would come home, there would be a new normal, whether it was through the dementia or the cancer. It's like you... You know, you're, I was on the train from New York to Providence, and every time I'd be gearing up, thinking about, I knew what was going to happen, and then right when you come in the door, all of a sudden, reality is upside down a little bit. And so I always felt like I was playing catch-up. And so I thought the book was a really good opportunity for me to to stay close. And as a actor and as a writer, it gave me an opportunity to say, you know what, I'm going to keep showing up because... I've got this project I want to work on. Um, so yeah, I ended up giving my mom the first draft of Room for Grace in late 2015, and it was like 300 pages, and it was really not edited very well, and it was lots of just straight from the mouth onto the page. And and then ever since then, it's kind of been whittled and edited, and it kind of follows the stories that my mom learned from her students in the classroom over 35 years we kept finding lots of parallels between kind of her students courageousness and their bravery about living with as handicapped or as disenfranchised and then a lot of her students also kept popping up in our present lives and so we kind of turned some of those lessons and it's about how a teacher learns from her students while she's reflecting as a caregiver with someone with her own disease as well. It's interesting that the book is now on pre-sale and will be officially released on October 2nd. And I'm going through this new phase where the book started off as this project to preserve mom and dad's legacy. And then it started as me saying, here's a project so I can show up. And now it's almost like, what do I do now? It's like almost been like an armor for me. And I'm getting, last week I had such a panic attack thinking... Like, is this project done? Is this going to separate me a little bit from my parents because I'm not working on it anymore and releasing it and kind of sharing it? And it's almost become a product a little bit that we have to figure out how to 
market and sell. And I'm thinking to myself, like, it's just so bizarre how to separate it from the story that actually happened and that kind of protected me all the way through to now, how, how do I do it without this project? And how do I continue the grieving? Or, and then on the other side, how do I continue living without the voices being ever so present? It was such an honor to be able to work with their voices every day and to kind of construct and live within our lives. And now it's almost like pushing and giving it off. And it's, it's, it's a little hard to swallow a little bit. What about heartbreak about your dad's diagnosis? You know, to have to tell you that, that the man that you idolized your whole life, that the man who I worked so hard, I worked equally as hard being your mother as I did in allowing him to be the father he wanted, um, was now no longer going to be able to do that. From daddy's, it broke my heart for daddy that he would not be able to be there for his son sons and it broke my heart that you were old enough to have to be told the truth and right from the beginning you said you wanted to be involved you wanted to know all of it you wanted to know all the notes please tell me everything and it now broke my heart that the child had to become the man and the man might not be able to be the man so it breaks my heart every time. It breaks my heart every time I see you look and laugh and smile at him. And a lot of times it's bittersweet. I'm laughing with a broken heart, which is a crazy emotion, but that happens a lot. I'm proud. My heart is full of pride, but yet it has cracks in it from the pain of knowing that, that you have a father that's sick. My family and I couldn't have done it without the support of our community. And that's one of the reasons I reached out to you guys to try to talk with you is just, you know, we started going to our grief support groups and then we kind of rallied our troops together for the Alzheimer's walk in 2014. We had a team and we brought about 35 people to Coney Island Boardwalk and we kind of surpassed our goal like six or seven times. And so it's kind of always been that thing where We've been letting people in. Uh, I guess, you know, my mom was using the website caringbridge.org, and she was using that for journaling and asking for help. And so honestly, for four years, people never shied away and people never said no. And so it is, it's bittersweet to finally say, like, this is a little bit of the story, not all of it. And this is what it was like. And you know, at the end of the book, there's like eight or nine pages of acknowledgments. Like we couldn't have done it alone. And I, I couldn't have named every person who influenced my parents along the way. But I tried to include as many names as possible just because literally there were meals, there were origami creams, there were signs in our lungs. People sang on my mom's birthday outside on the lawn. They would show up for Valentine's Day. It was literally the community rallied behind my parents and then every once in a while, some of her old students would just pop in just kind of surreptitiously. And then obviously our family, it just, it was, it was never ending. So to be able to say this is, uh, 
a little bit of the story and that we're able to share it with you, I guess I, I am obviously very, very proud, but I'm also just very proud that my parents lived the lives that they did so that when we needed it, the community rallied behind us. It was just, I don't know how someone would do it without their community. It, it was so heavy and just every day, the normal, it, you just feel so unbalanced. And so not to do that with a community to me would just be so frightening. So I'm really as hard and as difficult as it was to be able to have that that rally mentality was just, I'm so grateful. And I hope that by sharing the story a little bit, it also gives people, you know, the power to hear their own voices as well. Earlier on, I had taken some of my dad's oral history, probably back in 2012. Uh, I had organized a trip for him to come and meet me in Brooklyn. And we went to go see Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf on Broadway. Uh, And that was always one of my dad's favorite plays, that and Glass Menagerie. My dad was always kind of a big symbolism guy. So we went to go see that. And that weekend, his behavior was really erratic. FTD is kind of, it kind of, you know, works on the parts of the brain that overtake problem solving and behavior and speech and emotion control. And so at this point in 2012, before the initial diagnosis, dad's behavior was very erratic. He was drinking a lot. There was a little bit of aggression. Um, Fortunately, after the diagnosis, that kind of all went away when he realized that he had, you know, disease in his brain. He was able to, I don't know, come down a little bit. And we were, we lost that anger and after that, it was just very simple and profound moments. But so during that trip, I was able to get some of dad's, some of my dad's favorite stories on tape. He went to George Washington, the- uh, George Washington University for the theater program. And one of my stories that I always loved hearing my dad talk about was his relationship with his mentor, Sidney, and they would run the George Georgetown track while memorizing the lines to the architect and emperor of Assyria. And my dad's dad died when he was 20. Um, so he always viewed Sidney kind of as a father figure, and that's kind of what happens in the play as well. The the characters kind of exist as a son and father relationship, and so I think my dad really was able to I, internalize that. And then I went to George Washington for their theater department as well, and when I went for my audition, you know, people recognized my dad, and all of a sudden Buddy Kenner is walking in, here's his son, and people are asking about Sidney, and my dad was able to talk with some of his old the people he'd gone to school with. So all of a sudden, you know, I'm, it was kind of like being part of a family. So early on, we were, we were drinking a lot that weekend and, uh, the, the 49ers were playing. We've always kind of had a bond over the 49ers because when my dad was growing up, he would visit his uncle Paul in San Francisco and uncle Paul would send my dad over to Kizar stadium. And as my dad told it, it was the sixties and the stadium would be full of grass and, you know, he would come home and he would be all slant-eyed and kind of dizzy. And my uncle, my dad's dad, Uncle Paul, would say, you know, how, hey, buddy, how was the game? And he was like, well, let me just sit down for a minute. He's like, what game are you talking about? Just like so stoned out of his mind. And so it was just little stories like that kind of all coming together. So I got some of those on tape. Um, my dad always knew that I was writing and acting. And so further along in his dementia, I don't under, I don't know if he knew 
the process, but he knew like when I would come in with new ideas and I would come in with new pages, I would sit by his bed at the subacute nursing facility and I, w- I would read him things. I think one of the things that's fascinating about kind of just the, the circle of life is that when I was going through high school, my grandmother had Alzheimer's, my dad's mom. And so that was my my kind of first foray into it. And I remember like one of the most painful days was going for a visit with my mom. And we got out to the parking lot and my mom realized she forgot her water bottle. So I went back in and my grandmother kind of reacted like I was there for the first time, even though it had been a matter of minutes. And I think that was the first time I really had a hard time facing what was going on. And then I I missed a few visits, but my mom really taught me about regret that it just, I was, it wasn't something I could miss. And I really liked kind of being that person who would provide like sense memories maybe, and just kind of, I always thought of it like it's a game of improv almost like we would throw out like a a topic and she would just lead the way and we would follow. And I kind of, as a young actor, I always loved that idea. So to get back to the point, I I thought it was interesting that here's my grandmother and my dad looks after my grandmother. And then, and then back in 2008, my dad's best friend, Robert ended up with CJD Crutchfield's Jacob's disease. I'm pretty sure I'm pronouncing it correctly. And so they, alongside Robert's family, they ended up going down to Florida and visiting him a lot and kind of being there once a month and kind of being one of his supports. And then all of a sudden, my mom becomes my dad's caregiver. And then all of a sudden, at the end, I'm both of their caregivers alongside with my family and, you know, my brothers. And it's just that circle is so fascinating and how you watch other people become caregivers and then you yourself have to be a caregiver. And so I do remember one of the times coming to my dad's bed and reading him some of the pages that I had written with mom about the times that mom and dad were with Robert. And it it was just certain things always lit up my dad's eyes, no matter how far into the disease he got, whether it was my mom coming into a room or talking about Marlon Brando and James Dean. There were just certain things that you just don't lose. And, you know, fortunately at the end, my dad was just very content, I guess is the word that I would use. And I think, again, that's just purely just because so many good people put themselves in our paths to show up that we, even if I was having a difficult day, which obviously there are many all of a sudden there's somebody there to help you pick up the load. And so for me, that was just amazing. I remember one of my mom's favorite stories to tell was, you know, I think it was really hard for my mom to become my dad's caregiver while she's undergoing her own disease. And, you know, there was a time where right after she found out she had cancer and she was asked, who's your power of attorney? And I think that was my mom's first real breakdown when she realized that the man sitting next to her couldn't be that for her anymore. So we, there's a chapter in the book called No Longer My Person. And so then fast forward a few months, 
you know, my mom's going to chemo and my dad would be sitting on the couch reading a mystery and you'd be rereading the same lines he'd been reading all morning, not synthesizing. And my mom leaves for chemo and he weighs and he says, has a great day, you know, have a really good day. And she comes home and she's just ravaged and tired. And he's like, how was your day? (laughs) And just, you know, it just completely went over his head. So they went for a walk one day and my dad stopped and he looked at my mom and they were walking up a hill and he said, I'm sorry. And my mom said, what are you sorry about? And my dad said, I'm sorry you have a husband who has dementia. And my mom started crying a little bit and she said, I'm sorry. And my dad said, about what? And my mom said, I'm sorry that you have to live with a wife who has cancer. And then I guess they both just started laughing and walking up the hill. And I think it was really difficult for them both just to get back up this hill. And it ended up being this little symbol of just how far we had to go. And then mom and I ended up having the same kind of a talk in the summer of 2016 after dad fell down the stairs and he was upstairs in the NICU and mom and I are trying to find a little spot in the sun outside and we're talking and, and it was my mom at that point, my mom was getting chemo every other week and it was an off week. So we didn't have cancer and we're joking about how this was supposed to be a good week that mom's not on chemo this week and dad's upstairs practically paralyzed and it's just it was it was trauma at that moment because you know it was more fearful than any like early onset dementia support group it was scared more scary than walking in for chemo all of a sudden you know this man is upstairs paralyzed and it's just all of a sudden the everything is just getting smaller and smaller and every time that we tried to make you know lemons and the lemonade all of a sudden you just keep we kept getting tested so that was a really really scary that was a scary day we cried a lot that day you know i worry that i'm not strong enough for myself and i worry that i'm going to be able to keep my vow in sickness and in health to daddy Am I going to be the wife, be ready to be the wife that he needs in in his time of need? Am I going to have his back? I worry about that all the time. What's going to happen when something happens to me? What's going to happen to him? What's going to happen to me when something happens to him? For as many things on my to-do list, I also have that I get to knock off my to-do list. I also have things that I just never seem to get to, and I feel guilty about that. And I feel less of a partner. I feel less of a wife. I feel less of a sister, less of a mother than I ever have before in my entire life. So just to move toward an ending, you know, with retirement, this is not at all what I pictured it. I thought I would have more, not less. I definitely have more wisdom. I know that I have probably have more love from this. I've learned a lot about myself, like I tell you. I've learned how strong I really can be. And I imagine Daddy is still being as strong as he can be. I don't know what it's like in his head when I talk to him and ask him. You know, he does tell me he's confused and he forgets. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I don't want him to feel like a little child that I'm nagging him, you know. You know, I haven't... I'm trying to do the best I can. 
and I think it's a blessing that he is as content as he is. The trade-off is he's very, very quiet. And there's a lot of lonely days and lonely, lonely nights. And the things that I thought we were all working toward are not there. They're either gone or they're changed to the point where I don't recognize them anymore. And it feels very overwhelming. And then getting a prognosis and not being able to really share it with him and he doesn't understand that. It just makes me very sad. But again, I'm very grateful that it's not as bad as I thought it would be. And whether, I mean, I pray. I pray that there will always, that this will be the normal, the peace, that it will be peaceful. Whatever comes next, I just pray for peace. absolutely relied on on family and my and my two half brothers uh i had we were fortunate enough one of my brothers and his family lived a few blocks away from my mom and dad's house and then my mom like i said through 63 chemotherapies never went to chemo by herself so we constantly had a rotating door of my my mom's siblings my grandmother my cousins my nephews and family and friends and it literally just did not stop so it was completely it was never a one-man band so I was 26 years old and I had kind of just come off a little bit of success I was able to work a bunch of days on Inside Lewin Davis by the Coen Brothers and and Wolf of Wall Street the Scorsese film Um, my girlfriend at the time had just moved back from Kyrgyzstan she was working on a USAID project and kind of went into 2013 kind of completely wow this is like I'm on a good roll here and then I remember probably one of the most devastating moments through all this was halfway right before my best friends got married in uh, June or July of 2013 I ended up just lying in a bathtub with the door closed probably for like six or seven hours completely immobile, completely depressed, and completely just washed over at the fact that about what was happening to my mom and dad, and all of a sudden, it it just, I don't know, the world kind of stopped, and I don't really know if the world has started again, but I mean, it's completely, the gravitational pull is in a different direction now, but at that moment, it was, it was just gut-wrenching. You know, I, I didn't feel like the the best version of myself because I was so depressed. So we were counting on my grandmother and my aunts. Um, boy, that was, that was, that was a tough summer. I remember just like my mom had that feeling of who her power of attorney was going to be when they wheeled my mom out of surgery after they, they took the tumors out. I, that was probably the most, one of the most painful moments of my life and just my mom being wheeled in and my dad was in the corner and I was with one of my aunts and my grandmother and it was just literally just these two people on both sides of the room and kind of the three of us were in the middle and I completely just broke down 
I mean, just thinking that that's the new reality. Um, and so I think the book kind of saved me because for a year and a half, I was coming every few weeks. Sometimes it would ever be maybe two months that I would come home. And it really took the project for Room for Grace to get me coming back at that point from 2015 to the end. It was either I would be home every other week or for the last about eight months, I was basically home, you know, full time. And so I don't think if I had a project like that, I, I'm just so grateful that I did because I was, it was, it's so scary knowing that there's a reality here. And then you try to, I tried to come back to New York City and live normally and have a catch up with friends here and have independence here and try to live away from sickness and try to have, you know, financial independence and a job and to live in New York City and all that it provides. And then knowing all of a sudden, you know, in a week later when you hop on a train, it's like, it's just chaos. He was always known to his mom as Buddy, and then he was known to his uncles as Junior. Uh, one of the funny stories I remember when we were driving to Ohio for Christmas one year, we passed a toll booth when I was about eight years old, and the guy handed my dad change, and he said, here's your change, buddy. And I was like, Dad, how does this guy know you? <laughs> that, but that's the kind of dad I had. I felt like everyone knew who my dad was. And uh, yeah, so Buddy and Maureen, those were my parents. So my dad liked to tell this story that my my dad's uncle had a little henchman and his name was Little A.B. Levine. And what they would do, Little A.B. Levine was a diamond merchant. And what they would do, they would play cards all afternoon. And then at a certain time, they would go to a Sears or a Robux. And he would, my dad's uncle would go with his little henchman, Little A.B. Levine, and they would go to the back of the store. They would unroll a rug and they would put little A.B. Levine into the rug and then he would roll it back up and then he would put it back on the display stand so that when everyone left for the day and the store was completely closed, little A.B. Levine, he would just toss himself over, unroll himself from the rug and then just let my dad's uncle in from the front door and they would just jack all the merchandise and then sell it out back. <laughs> little A.B. Levine, that's a, that's a story I would never forget. <laughs> I think my dad's favorite story probably had to do with his uncle. His name was Julius. And my dad kind of cared for him. My dad, uh, Julius had diabetes. And so my, my dad would be there. And right before he was going to die, Julius gave my dad uh, the keys to his Mercedes convertible. And he had to come to New York City. And he gave my dad four keys to s safety deposit boxes here at four different banks in New York. And so my dad came back with a satchel of, I think, about $75,000. <laughs> and so he went to his mom's house and asked his mom to come downstairs. And so she came downstairs, and my dad just kind of emptied the satchel onto the kitchen table of $75,000. So that was my dad's favorite story. And that's how he uh, started his restaurant. I hope this case isn't still active. I hope that... <laughs> I hope that the statue of limitations have already been passed. <laughs> One of the saddest things that I can remember was right near the beginning, uh, and I wasn't there. I was when my mom and dad came home. I heard this story, and it was on Valentine's Day when he got the official diagnosis of the FTD, and the doctor said you can't be a teacher anymore. 
and the way my mom told it she said it was almost just like watching the air go out of my dad that one last thing in his life that gave him a little bit of purpose and that made him feel confident uh she said it kind of just literally came out of him just like emptying a balloon and i think he was really empty for a while knowing not only was he going to have purposeful meaningful employment again but how was he going to be a provider how was he going to be a man and i think one of his favorite things was being able to be a mentor for all of his young students in the theater department and putting on a show every spring and directing the production and i and i i remember that coming home that it was almost like seeing a shell of a man that I loved. How, how do you give confidence to somebody whose abilities are going to start disappearing? And I, I remember being really afraid that that was going to be the new normal. But I just, I think it was my mom's love and the love of our friends and my brothers and my family that really was able to stay present and to keep giving us opportunities to live fully. And so he may not have, you know, paid the mortgage. He may not have bought the groceries anymore. He may not have been able to even vacuum the rug. But he was, he he was light and energy. And my dad was always just mischievous and rebellious. And he never lost that. And the further he went into dementia, the purest intentions of my dad came out of just pure love and encouragement and there was that look in his eyes whether it was just it, it was past recognition it was it was like an earned love as long as i have julius and sydney and paco i've got stories Plus my, my sons, and I've got five grandchildren. And I've got a lovely wife that I love and we've been trying to take care of her with that, this chemotherapy. It's not easy. How do you think she's doing? Pretty well today. There's some days that after two or three days of the chemo, she's just, she can't even get out of her, her bed just hurts too much. That must be hard for you. Yeah, it is, because I take care of her, just like I took care of Julius. And Paco. And Paco. You know, when I was growing up, my dad would take me a lot to the Brown Bears practice facilities in Providence, and we would go after school, and he would throw me footballs and he would kind of teach me how to throw the perfect spiral and we were doing it right alongside where the brown bears practiced but the biggest compliment i can give of my dad was that he had someone who wanted to learn all the things that he loved and love them just as much or more one of the funniest things i remember was growing up my dad had an oldsmobile and we were driving downtown Providence and we were listening to Bob Dylan's Desire and uh, the song Hurricane came on and there's a line in there where he's saying, you know, the son of a bitch is braver and getting braver. And I'm sitting in the car with my dad and like my dad's just singing along, just one hand on the wheel. And I'm like, dad, Bob Dylan just said, son of a bitch. 
much. And I and he, my dad's just like you know sitting back smiling and singing the lyrics. I just felt like my dad was just so cool, and I thought that was I I just was so lucky. Seeing him the weekend where he dropped me off at George Washington was it was such a blast. And then every time he came to one of my productions that pride i was able to direct a play called crave by sarah kane and it's very esoteric and very avant-garde and violent and and spastic and i think he it kind of brought him back and we did the production in the same place where my dad did that play architect and improvisaria with his mentor sydney and so coming back to see his own son kind of be working on his own passion project i it, it was a treat you know, I felt really, really lucky. And my mom may have always had the loudest applause in any room, but it was that look of just knowing that I had done a, a job well done for my dad that was, it was, uh, it was sweet. It was sweet. About four weeks before my dad passed away, I was having a visit with him and we had Bob Dylan on in the background. And, you know, at that point, my dad was kind of going in and out of, consciousness and hallucinations so you didn't really know what was the medication and what was his mind uh, and we kind of equated it to like a light bulb flickering flickering on and flickering off and one of these days where he was kind of an on day and he was talkative and he was he was very breathy and it was a few days before he got pneumonia and you could kind of hear his lungs rattling but I was sitting with him and all of a sudden out of nowhere he told me he was gonna die and this is four weeks before he actually did. And so for the next hour, I got to, you know, say goodbye. And for me personally, I'm so glad that I had these years of all of these long goodbyes and all of these small moments and all these small miracles that I get to sit next to my dad with Bob Dylan playing in the background. And at that time, he wasn't able to sing the words to Like a Rolling Stone, but we looked at each other for those six minutes the song was going on and it was just that held eye contact where there was no other world in that moment and he told me that he saw his mom and his mom was above his bed and that I needed to start preparing his coffin and that the ladies were here and they were about to take him up into the light and it was just like what medication is this guy on in this moment and I remember going home to my mom and completely crying and she was upstairs in bed and we had just we were, she had just gotten her oxygen tank a few weeks before that, and immediately I came in the door and I'm like, "Mom!" And she she could tell by the the timbre in my voice that it was just I was kind of losing a little bit. So I came up, and I just had no words and I was just crying and and I think I was scaring her a lot because she didn't really know what happened. So I ended up telling her what happened and and it was amazing and she she said something like how lucky you are that you got to share this mystery together and that, you know, I was able to give him a gift. I didn't think of it as a gift in that moment. Hey, Ralph. It's your, lo your loving husband from, whoa, whoa, way back then. I don't know when. <laughs> I know that you and I used to hang around together and you used to laugh with me and I'd laugh with you and and then after we'd laugh together we'd we'd find out what was really 
was captivating about Well, we used to, uh, retreat with each other. I had a hard time wanting to go back for the next few times because it was almost like I had said goodbye. It's going to ruin that amazing moment we had together. Obviously we did, and, and the day he passed, um, both of my brothers and I were around his bed, and you know we were all being quiet, and, and there was Bob Dylan again in the background singing along, and you know all of a sudden Dad gave his last breath. and and then my mom came in a moment later and I looked at her and I just said it's over and um at that point she was in her wheelchair and she kind of she was pushed to the bed and she kind of literally just fell onto my dad's bed and and cried for a really long time but we were we were able to give my dad a, a we held a Quaker funeral which was really really cool for me, I mean, I love the stories, so I think that's one of the reasons I'm so excited about Room for Grace is to, hopefully it encourages other people to, if if it, if there is a conversation, I can't wait, because at the funeral, it was just a chance for people to stand up when they felt the moment come to them, and, and I just love hearing the small moments that other people, that sticks with them as well, whether it's, you know, a a dirty joke or whether it's a memory on a golf course and my dad lost his emerald earring and he's playing barefoot and he's only using a putter and a five iron and an eight iron. I think this book is going to provide an opportunity for me to, even if I'm not still working on their stories, to keep the stories alive by being able to talk about it with others. One of my last favorite memories was when mom and dad came to New York and we saw Les Miserables. We were watching Les Mis, and in the second act, my mom and I are just weeping, and my dad's in the middle of us, and he just reaches out, and he just holds both of our hands. Now, this is coming from the same guy who, after act one, because the dementia was so far gone at this point, he thought the play was over. So... For for him to have that, to recognize that energy coming from both sides of him. And we just got to watch the end of the play and just awe and amazement. And recently I went to go, we went to, I went with my girlfriend to Philadelphia and we saw the touring version of Les Mis. And at the end of the play, a, a feather floated down from the ceiling from nowhere and it fell right onto us. And it was... Um, I guess I'm just kind of open-eyed now about looking for signs and symbols and that just that moment. I mean, I'm, it was amazing just standing there having given a, a standing ovation and the room is cleared and I'm still just standing at the empty stage and a feather just floats down onto me. And so, you know, energy's still there, whether whatever it is in that moment they were with me. 
Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to share your story, go to caringkindnyc.org slash podcast. Maybe we'll use your story on the show. We'd love to hear from you. Please subscribe to this podcast and leave some glowing feedback. We love positive reinforcement. I'm Chris Doucette, and you're listening to Caregiver Storyteller, produced by Karen Kind, the heart of Alzheimer's caregiving.